Hebrews chapter 7 we're starting on today. Jesus is our king and our priest uh, in the order of Melchizedek. We finally get to talk about Melchizedek. Back in Hebrews 5, we read this, concerning him, concerning Jesus, we have much to say. Oh, there are notes at the back, by the way. David's just gone and got some. If anyone wants some notes, go, just go and get some. Don't worry, you're interrupting me. Get some notes, get a pen, join in with this. You can make notes as you go along. You can ask me questions after. Concerning Jesus, says Paul writing, we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. And he deals with their, their, their need to mature, to get some foundations in. And in Hebrews 6, he says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Jesus, let us press on to maturity. He's not leaving teaching about Jesus. He wants to tell them more about Jesus. And that's what we're getting to now in Hebrews 7. Hebrews is all about Jesus and that Jesus is better. Better than what? Better than every other alternative. Including every other religion, including, and I'll say this on record, including Judaism. Jesus is better. So chapter 6 ended with this. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope with both stead, sure and steadfast, one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And this is the main point of this letter. We have such a king, such a priest, who is like Melchizedek, but he's forever. Jesus, by God's oath, is appointed our king and priest forever. And you remember we looked at those two oaths, two immutable things, two things which God cannot lie in, are that, number one, he's appointed by oath his son as king, and second, he's appointed his son by oath as priest forever for us. So Paul continues now, opening up this theme of Jesus being our king and our high priest, a greater king than David and Solomon and all the others, and a greater high priest than any of them. In fact, he goes back to a, a different order, to Melchizedek. Genesis 14 as this template about the excellencies of Jesus. Why pick Melchizedek? Well, it's not just random, because this is the, one of the promises that God has made concerning Jesus. One, Psalm 110 verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So Paul writing Hebrews isn't making it up. Well, where can I pick from the Old Testament to make up to make this story add up together. He's choosing this scripture as a keynote scripture to say, that's the oath, that's the promise, that's the order that Jesus has been put into. So let's start on Hebrews 7 today. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. That's what, that's what Melchizedek means, King of Righteousness. And then King of Salem, because he was King of Salem, which later on we believe became Jerusalem, which is King of Peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of days, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. This incident is taken from Genesis 14, Abraham and Melchizedek. Abraham returns from re successfully recovering his nephew Lot with his family and possessions from a group of kings. They weren't such big kings. They were just like chieftains, really. Who'd raided Sodom and the surrounding area and had taken Lot and his family and all of their goods away. And on his way back, 
Abraham is met, first of all, uh, for, by the king of Sodom, who's clearly grateful. <laughs> He's got his little chieftain, chiefship, uh, chieftain back. And then by this Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of Salem, who is a priest of the Most High God. And he comes out to Abraham and brings him bread and wine. Then he pronounces God's blessing on Abraham. And then Abraham gives to Melchizedek a tenth of all that he's just gained in his warfare. Now, are we to understand that Melchizedek literally was without father and mother, that he just appeared, that he was somehow heavenly? Was he even Jesus, having neither beginning or days nor end of life? In other words, was Melchizedek actually Jesus appearing to Abraham? There was a time when I thought that, but I've, when we were doing John 1, if you remember John 1, 18, I kind of studied that through and I, I changed my mind on it. I think not. This does not fit the pre-incarnation appearances of the Son of God as the messenger of Yahweh. Both have a pattern to them. This one isn't in that pattern. And Hebrews here actually states that Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. They're two different characters. And Melchizedek pictures Jesus in some ways. He was made like him in some ways. And these comments about him, without father, without mother, mean that he's got no genealogy, he's got no background. He just turns up. There's no history to him. You don't know who, we, who his dad was, who his mum was. We don't know when he was born, when he died. He just appears. And though it seems that Abraham knew him already, two comparisons are made in this chapter. Two big comparisons, then some small ones. First is Jesus with Melchizedek. They are two different people, but there are similarities. And there are things we learn in Melchizedek that tell us about Jesus. Melchizedek was the foreshadowing. We use the word type, but type is the stuff we make print with paper nowadays. A foreshadowing of Jesus. A little character sketch, a little cartoon. Not the reality, but a picturing of the reality of Jesus. And then Jesus and Melchizedek are altogether different from the the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood of the Old Covenant, beginning with Aaron and his sons and the Levites and so on, all right? which is why we call it Levitical, how Jesus and Melchizedek are different. The person and priesthood of Melchizedek, and even more so Jesus, is far superior to the priesthood of the law, those who served in the tabernacle of Israel and then in the Jerusalem temples. Melchizedek preceded the Levitical priests by hundreds of years. Jesus has superseded the Old Testament priests and indeed the law altogether. So Melchizedek appears apparently from nowhere. Therefore, he also has no start date or retirement date. Now, you'll be very jealous when I tell you this, that the Levitical priests didn't even start work until they were 25. Then they had five years of training, they were juniors, they were servants to the other priests, and at the age of 30 they became full priests and they went into the tabernacle, the temple and served, and they retired at the age of 50. <laughs> I'm out of here. <laughs> but Melchizedek didn't start, didn't finish. There's no record of it. He's not of that order. He's of an earlier order, a different order. In fact, a higher order. Melchizedek brings bread, blesses him, receives tithes. And Melchizedek, in what he's doing with Abraham, foreshadows the new covenant, where all the complications of the old covenant with, with sacrifices and trappings and, 
and, and robes and all the rest of it, are removed to leave us with the simplicity of the gospel. We are in fact in the same relationship with God that Abraham had. It is called grace through faith. God blessed Abraham on the basis of simply faith. There are six points of comparison in this chapter between Melchizedek and Messiah. It's a bit small on the screen, but you've got it in notes if you've got it in there. First of all, Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness, and Jesus is our king of righteousness. Righteousness, the way I define it, is this right relationship with God leading to right behavior in life. Jesus, of course, had right relationship with the Father and conducted himself always with total righteousness. He kept the law. He more than fulfilled the law. Right? Right relationship with right behavior. But then Jesus is the source of our righteousness. All the benefit, all the, that righteousness of right relationship and right behavior that was in Jesus is credited to us. He's our king of righteousness. And then he leads us and teaches us how to live the way he lived. We learn righteousness. The word of righteousness, we read it in Hebrews 6. We, we are instructed and helped by the word of righteousness which shapes the way we live as we follow Jesus. He's the king of righteousness. Then he's the king of peace because peace is the product of righteousness. When you have right relationship with God, when you're fully restored and accepted and adopted by the Father, then you have peace with God. Why? Because all his wrath was spent on Christ at the cross. And so Jesus established peace, this relationship, which a relationship of peace, not of disturbance, not of anxiety, but of peace. Peace is always connected to righteousness. And Jesus is our king of peace. And Jesus, like Melchizedek, unlike the Levitical priests, had no lineage. In fact, he came from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. So there's no logical reason why, according to the Old Testament law, Jesus could have been a priest. But he's priest by a different order. And by the oath of God. And then, the last three are the ones I want to spend more time on. He... Melchizedek and Jesus are the givers of bread and wine. Melchizedek and Jesus give blessing. And the blessing flows from the greater to the lesser. And in the case of both Melchizedek and Jesus, we're looking at the issue of tithes. Let's come to bread and wine. Okay, can you make the connection with me? Here's 1 Corinthians 11. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, and he would have done that, let me act this for you like this, he would have taken a piece of flatbread, probably a round piece of flatbread, lifted it up, held it in his hands, said the traditional Jewish prayer of thanksgiving to the Father for this bread. Then he, would have, then he did this, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying these words, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper. Now, this cup was a special cup. It was the end of the Passover meal. And there's a final cup of wine. You, you have up to five cups of wine in a Passover meal. It sounds like an interesting evening. Maybe they're very small cups. I think they are. And this final cup is called the cup of blessing because they say a blessing to God over it. They bless God for the wine. And Jesus 
took the cup of blessing and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he come. Bread and wine. Back in Genesis 14, Abraham received bread and wine from Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God. This is before the name Yahweh came in. When God said to Moses, I am what I am. I am who I am. I'm Yahweh. Jesus, on the night before he went to the cross, the night he was betrayed, it says, gave bread and wine to his disciples, used the Passover meal with all of its prayers, but interpreted bread and wine not merely as symbols of something that happened in Egypt, but of his body and his blood about to be given at Golgotha. And we come to the Lord's table to receive bread and wine from our brothers and sisters. But get this, as if from the hands of Jesus himself. As if we are there at the Last Supper. It's the same table. It's just we're we're acting it out again. He gives us, what does he give us? Bread and wine. Yeah, but what are they symbols of? His body and his blood by which we were brought into this new covenant. The blood of the new covenant. Jesus says it in such a powerful shorthand way. This is the blood of the new covenant. Through his shedding of his blood, the new covenant was sealed, delivered. When Jesus said, I know, I've said this many times, when Jesus said, it is finished, it was was finished. The incident of Abraham and Melchizedek foreshadowed and looked forward to the day when Jesus would portray his body and blood given for us with bread and wine. And we use bread and wine as he commands us to look back to the cross to the offering of his body and his blood. Bread and wine. The second one is blessing. What is blessing? Now, those of you who know me well know that I have a, a, a real love of jargon. I love shooting it. Big 12 ball. Bam! I, I, you know, the problem with jargon is people get so used to it, it gets a currency of its own, and we can move away, we move right away from what it means. Like the word anointing. People use the word anointing when I say, what do you mean by anointing? And they struggle to tell me. So I give them a definition. What you mean by anointing should be, you mean the person and presence of the Holy Spirit who is empowering us in some way. If you don't mean that, I don't want your anointing. You understand? It's a jargon word. It's run away over there. And I'm pulling it back in, and if I can't, I'll shoot it. (laughs) It's being of no use, being unhelpful. Well, I'm going to do that with this word blessing today. Because it's a... This is another one of these charismatic, like, like you know, hobby horses, seahorses, they run around on seahorses, circus horses. You know, people talk about blessing, and I think what they mean sometimes is, 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 is a sense of God's grace and peace or joy or something, and that's, that's fine. It's an internal thing, that's fine, but it's bigger than that. 
Or they think the blessing is when someone prophesies something. Well, it could be, but it's not always. Let me give you a definition of blessing. If we are blessing people or something, then it is a prayer for or prophetic declaration of the goodness of God towards someone or a group of people. We are calling on the name of the Lord and calling his name over this, this person or his people that he will act in his goodness and power towards them. You understand? It's not something we're doing. It's something we're, ta- we're, 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 we're praying for or, or, or even prophetically declaring. He is going to do this. He's going to bring his goodness to you. He's going to bring his power to you and he's going to help you in this particular way. The blessing of God Almighty. We bless God too, but we'll get to that in a minute. The blessing of God, I, I like to talk about God's heart and his hand. You know, the blessing of God flows from his heart and is delivered by his hand. Now the hand of the Lord is another way of talking about the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. But God's heart of love and compassion and kindness towards us are delivered by his Spirit into us, so we do have some internal thing you could call the blessing of God, but also they're seen at work in his deeds around us, for us, in our circumstances, in our situation, in our life. We see the hand of God. It's the blessing of God. His heart and his hand towards us. To bless someone calls for or states God's providence, his provision, his protection, his preservation. And I know you've heard those from me before because that's how I preach the Lord's Prayer, the pattern prayer, the things we should be praying for every day. Blessing is not wishful thinking. I kind of hope this happens. It's not best wishes, and it's not us talking to ourselves. You know? Bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you. Kind of thing. I know what we mean, but we're not really touching what blessing means. Blessing is God-focused. It is His blessing. It is His wisdom, His love, His power at work that is being foreseen and prayed for or prophesied. We don't bless in our name, we bless in His name. There's a charismatic trend in recent years. So instead of praying, people are always there's always something that knocks praying, and I know the devil's behind us not not praying, right? So let's not pray. Let's do this, right? Now I'm not criticizing my dear brothers and sisters to get into this because it just becomes a trend. We're not going to pray. We're going to bless. We're going to bless this. We're going to bless that. We bless. We bless. We bless. We bless. We bless. Where's the name of the Lord in? Here is the blessing that the Lord instructed the Levitical priests to declare over Israel. The Lord said to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them. And they did it with raised hands. The Lord bless you. Who's going to do it? God! The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel. The blessing is in the name of the Lord. He will do it. And I will then bless them. But hundreds of years before that blessing was given, 
to the Old Testament priests, Melchizedek blessed Abraham as priest of the Most High God. And he pronounced the blessing of God on Abraham. And we have the words he spoke there here in Genesis 14. He blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, stop for a moment. Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Not in every way, but in some ways. He had greater spiritual authority. He was, he was Abraham's leader in the Lord in that sense. An overseer. He acted as a high priest. We don't have priests. We're all priests. Right? But someone in spiritual authority, godly authority, blessed Abraham. The greater blessed the lesser. We're blessed in Jesus. The heart and hand of God are toward us and for us. His promises are confirmed to us in Jesus. Now look at this again. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, which means blessing of the Spirit. It's not a blessing in your spirit, it's a blessing of the Spirit, capital S, in the heavenly places in Christ. Now I want you to notice something. When we look just there at Melchizedek's blessing of Abraham, when we look here at Ephesians 1 verse 3, from Genesis through the end of the New Testament, blessing is always two ways. Men are blessed by God and they bless God. Men are supplied by God and they give back to God. He blesses us, we bless Him. He gives to us, we give back to Him. And that is not law. That's how Abraham lived hundreds of years before the law was given. And that is the model of how we live now as New Covenant people. Blessing is two-way. God blesses us, we bless Him. Now I know we, we lifted our hands this morning, but just this week as I've been preaching this to myself and learning it. Do you know something? We tend to lift our hands because we feel something. Oh, I feel like lifting my hands. Do you know what? This week I've determined it doesn't matter what I feel. I'm going to bless God. I'm going to raise my hands and speak the words of blessing to my God. He blesses me, I bless Him. Again and again and again and again. He gives to me, I give to Him. New covenant life. Nothing to do with the law. It predates it. It goes back to Genesis and to Abraham and Melchizedek. Abraham was blessed of God through Melchizedek. We are blessed of God through a greater priest, a better priest, through our Lord Jesus. And we give thanks and blessing to God through Jesus. And I think we need to see this far more. We need to think about this far more in our prayer and in our worship time. God-centered, God-focused. Not even need-focused, God-focused. And we need to take time to bless the Lord, to give thanks to Him. I, 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 I am rebuking myself for being not very often thankful. You know, David said, and he was in some dire situations. You know, he's complaining. And he's pouring out his heart to God. And you're entitled to do that. But he always comes back to this, I will bless the Lord. I will give thanks to his name. And, you know, a thousand years before Jesus, he knew how to do that. And we seem to have forgotten how to do that. 
I will thank the Lord. I will bless the Lord. And it's an I will, not I feel like it. It's a choice. I will do it. I will do it. And then what happens is this, because it's two-way. Guess what does God does when we bless him? He blesses us back some more. Whether that is internally, our experience of his love, his joy, his peace, or externally in circumstances and situations which are a difficulty to us or we need his help, in, we see the blessing of God. We feel the blessing of God. We have the experience that, that the Levitical priests were to pray for, that the light of his countenance shines upon us. We know his joy, we know his pleasure. It's two-way. We have been brought into relationship, into a covenant relationship with God through Jesus. It is a relationship. And we have a part to play. The part is very simple. Be thankful. Return blessing. And the third one is this, tithing. Sharp intake of breath all around the room. Hello. <laughs> tithing predated the law. It is not introduced in the law. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek hundreds of years before the law came through Moses. Jacob, Abraham's, Abraham's grandson at Bethel, when he had a revelation of the Lord, promised his tithe to the Lord. Genesis 8. That's not Genesis 8, should be 18, I think. Verse 22. So we can assume that between Abraham, the granddad, and, I, and, and, and uh, Jacob, the grandson, Isaac, the son, in between, almost certainly also tithed, though we don't find in Scripture. Because otherwise, how did Jacob get the idea? How how did, he not, how did he know that this was like family, family tradition almost, in a sense? And there's a right sense of tradition, not all tradition is bad. You know, that, that we're, we're men of God and we, we serve God and we, we give our tithes to him. We're not under law. We're in a model of faith and obedience which is Abrahamic. It goes back to Abraham. There's a lovely quote from John Calvin. What Abraham owed to God, he gave to Melchizedek. Beautifully simple. When he had opportunity and he found the priest of the Most High serving him bread and wine, blessing him, he said, ah, now's the time to do my giving to God. Mm. Tithing continues into the New Testament. It's part of our new covenant relationship of grace through faith. We should tithe and return from our house, our household, to God's household, the very first proportion, a tenth of all that he supplies to us. I'm going to give you again the words of Jesus on tithing. They're very significant. I'm going to read both of them, Matthew and Luke. Jesus said, Matthew, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint and dill and cumin. Can you imagine going down the, 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 outside the house to the garden and snipping out a tenth of all of the herbs? <laughs> you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these things you should have done without neglecting the others. Here's Luke's version. Woe to you, Pharisees! You pay tithe and mint and ruin every kind of garden herb, yet disregard justice and the love of God. Slightly different emphasis there. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Now, listen to me. 
particularly Matthew's Gospel, we read Jesus boldly addressing some issues of Old Testament law and practice. And he, 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 he redefines them and, 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 and he supersedes them. And Jesus was not afraid to address Old Testament issues. Do you, do you get me? Yeah. yeah, when he's talking about tithing, here's what Jesus says about tithing. There are weightier issues, but don't neglect tithing. Do you get it? Yes. Of course there are some things which are, you know, far more up the list. But don't neglect tithing. Those are the words. That is the teaching of Jesus the Messiah. Don't neglect it. By the body and blood of Jesus Messiah, we've been brought into this new and better covenant. In him we're blessed with every blessing of God through the Spirit. Part of our response to him, our keeping covenant with him, is to return the first fruits, a tenth of all that he gives us back to him. Andrew Murray puts it as simply as this. You got the note. We receive blessing from him, he receives tithes from us. Christ gives us the blessing, we give him the tithes. And the tithes to God are the acknowledgement that actually it's all his, he has the right to it all. And the connection between tithes and the blessing is closer than we know. Do you remember down in uh, Matthew, Malachi 3 verse 20? The promise there. It's in my footnotes, but I'll read it to you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I want to open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Now, I've, def- I've defined blessing for you. You've got that, right? But you see how tithes and blessing are connected together? Yes. It's part of how we return blessing to God, and when we do that, guess what? More blessing comes. Yes. Bread and wine. Blessing. Tithes. These things are not old hat. They are emphasized to us through the Melchizedek Genesis incident to be replied to who? To Jesus. To us today. We're in the same thing. But we have greater revelation. And we have a greater priest. And his name is Jesus. I'm going to read on a bit more. Have a few more verses. Verse 4. We only did three verses so far and we're going to verse 22. But don't worry. This is summary. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of all the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from their people, that is the brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, Melchizedek, collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men, the Levites, receive tithes, but in the case, in that case, back with Genesis 14, Melchizedek and Abraham, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And, so to speak, though Abraham, through Abraham, even Levi, Abraham's great-great-great-grandson, uh, I forgot how many great son he put in there, but anyway, who received tithes, paid tithes. Now this is very Hebrew thinking. A man who was decades 
if not a century away from being born, was in Abraham, you know, and in time was the seed of Abraham, but he paid tithes because he was in Abraham when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Okay? You think, well, I can't go there. Well, the writer does, and he's, and he's saying, so to speak, in a way of speaking. Levites were descended from Abraham and were in Abraham's loins or groin, literally, when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Those priests who later received tithes paid tithes in great-great-granddad Abraham. Melchizedek's greater than Abraham, greater than Levites. And Melchizedek is only a foreshadow of Jesus. I would, before we move on, sum it up this way. If Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, who is greater than him, but only a foreshadow of Jesus, how much more should we tithe to our Master Jesus? Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law. What further need was there for another priest to rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not designated according to the order of Aaron? If the Old Testament priesthood and the tabernacle, the temple, and all of that was, was fine, good to go, doesn't need improving, it'll last until the end of the age, how, why did God appoint a priest of a different order? But he has, because the Old Testament was going to be wrapped up and put away. Why? Is there a new covenant? Because the old covenant wasn't going to last. It didn't produce perfection. Verse 12. For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, that takes a place, place to change the law also. For the one consuming whom these things are spoken, Melchizedek in other words, and therefore Jesus, are spoken, belongs to another tribe from which no one is officiated at the altar. For it is evident our Lord was descended from Judah a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the order of Melchizedek, has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. Jesus doesn't reign as priest because he fits the Old Testament bill, but because God has appointed him by oath, and Jesus will never cease being our priest because he's risen from the dead, and he's full of indestructible life. He will be our priest forever. Messiah has superseded the Levitical priesthood. He came from Judah. He serves as our high priest, not by natural descent, but by the oath of God. For it is attested of him, and we come back again to Psalm 110, verse 4. It's quoted twice in these next few verses. It is attested of him, of Jesus, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, is a setting aside of a former commandment. This is the law. The whole of the structure of the law. Not the moral law, the Ten Commandments, but the whole of the rest of the structure of the law. It was, now look at these words, weak and useless. It was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope, this hope which enters within the veil, Jesus our forerunner, through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests in the Old Covenant without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. I'm going to pick up on that verse the next time we start up again. The law made nothing perfect. It declared the righteousness of God. It measured what righteousness would look like. But guess what? 
when that was applied to us, all it told us was how sinful we were. How far we fell from the standard. So it became for us the tape measure of sin, not a guide to how to live. It provided in the offerings and sacrifices a way of forgiveness of sin and relief from guilt, which foreshadowed the final sacrifice of Jesus. But it could not fix anyone. It couldn't change them. It couldn't give them new birth. It couldn't bring them to adoption as a child of God. The apostle here even calls the law weak and useless. Strong words. Here's Andrew Murray again. A law is only a proof. Sorry. A law is not only a proof that the right life is wanting, meaning missing, because this is Victorian English, but it is helpless to produce it. It may check and restrain, but it cannot inspire. It can demand, but it cannot give. It has power to command, but not to create what it seeks. In that sense, the law was weak, and the law was useless. But Jesus, Paul is saying, in Jesus we have a better and greater priest, a full and complete sacrifice for all sin, a way not only of forgiveness, but of freedom, a way not only of cleansing, but of equipping, we have a better hope through which we draw near to God. All of the old covenant, the tabernacle, the temple, the, which was an p- imperfect version of the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the offerings were all shadows of a greater and better reality in Jesus Messiah. The law was a temporary interlude of something that we see early on in Genesis and particularly in Abraham and then is completed for us in Jesus. Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, greater than Aaron, and yet he was only a shadow. Paul's already said, concerning him, Jesus, we have much more to say. And we have much more to learn in these chapters, and then in the rest of Hebrews, we get into chapter 9 and into chapter 10, and we learn about Jesus' being, body being the veil, which was torn for us, and we learn about his blood, which was, which was not only sacrificed on the cross, but was presented before the presence of God for us. Some tremendous truths about Jesus yet to come. But here's the main point. It's the main point of the whole book. We have this king. We have this high priest. In two weeks' time, I'm going to be delighted to get to the point and be able to say to you, we have a high priest who prays for us. He's able to save to the very end those who come to God through him, for he always lives to make intercession. I feel like preaching it now, but it's got to wait too long. We have this king, this high priest, exalted to the highest of heaven, seated in the throne of God. We have a man in heaven. He's our anchor, our forerunner. We really need to see this, to see Jesus as our exalted king and priest. We need to understand, as I'll talk about it two weeks' time, that Jesus has not only saved us in the past, Jesus saves us now. He's actively, progressively our saviour today. We lack nothing that we need for life and godliness because the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. We are blessed from heaven with every blessing of the Spirit and we return blessing to God. We receive from God and give back to God in thanksgiving and in tithes and offerings. And we are not under law. We're following the much earlier example of Abraham, of the man who first learned grace through faith, who received the promises of God and was blessed by God through Melchizedek. We are blessed in Messiah Jesus, our Lord. 
We endure hardship and difficulties as seeing him who is unseen. We haven't seen him, but we love him. We don't see him now, but we believe in him. Let me read that to you from 1 Peter 1. You notice how it starts again. Who's blessed? God is blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I need to put my hands up to say that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, can't be stolen, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And oh, how this is true for you and me today. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul.